neoliberalism reduces classical liberalism to market economics. And that is dangerously reductionist, I think. What, what we have to do is recapture the spirit of an earlier liberalism. Hello and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known people and we try and drill down into their core beliefs, work out what they're all about and uh, and have an interesting conversation, hopefully. And with me today, I'm very excited to have Professor Solari Seedentop, uh, the distinguished political scientist. I don't know if that's how you describe it. Political philosopher. Political philosopher. You prefer quite right too. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. (laughs) What we tend to do, Solari, is try and work out the trajectory of your thought, beginning perhaps by asking you to say a little bit about your background and where you come from and perhaps something about the home which you grow up and that sort of thing. So perhaps you'd reminisce for me about, paint me a picture of, of your, your home. You're American. I was born in the United States, in the lying in hospital at the University of Chicago. So I sort of feel my beginning is also probably going to be my end. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, when, when, when 83. 83, right, right, right. And tell me about tell me about your and you grew up in Chicago, did you? Well, and just outside Chicago, in in a suburb called Downers Grove, my grandmother, who was widowed when she was still quite young, was a great influence in my life, and she she was very interested in ideas and books, and uh, that can have such an impact on. A child, and you went to school in uh, in the United States. Yes, as well. and uh, and before going to Harvard, I went to a Dutch college, well run really by the the American branch of the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh huh. And was it? And was that? Was there a sort of Calvin? Was it? Was it strongly Calvinist? Well, well I mean, it was moderately Calvinist. Okay. let's say. Right. But at least you know the great advantage in a way is having any set of ideas presented and. Uh, argued for and defended, uh, that is a very important part of early education, I think. Yeah. Uh, being you know, confronted by beliefs which, which have some very considerable basis in argument. Uh, so it, it raises issues which you, know, you can carry through life, really. Well, was, was your family a, a Christian family, would you say? Yes, not... Uh, uh, not intensely so. Right. My grandmother perhaps a bit more, and I perhaps a bit more. Right. And and what was the uh, what, what 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 was the sort of spark? That, that was was there a sort of stuff you started reading when you were younger that was that really sort of ignited your interest and passion in ideas? Well, I think my grandmother played an important part. Things that she gave me to read, pushing me well beyond the age when I probably ought to have been reading them. I remember trying to read some Kant when I was about 12 years old. (laughs) Twelve? That's impossible! I'm afraid it is possible. (laughs) I'm not sure I recommend it. So you were a prodigy? (laughs) No, hardly. Hardly. I think in a way the the decline in our time of uh, that sort of more formal religious instruction carries risks 
as far as uh, keeping alive, a certain uh, a whole set of basic questions about who we are and why we're here. I, I, I was brought up in a sort of non-religious family and came to those sorts of ideas later, later in life. And, um, but it seems to me that um, w- without them, there are all sorts of things about our place in the world that just don't get put on the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, everybody thinks you're terribly credulous when you have some sort of religious upbringing, but I think actually it, it really is the sort of a way of introducing you to disputation. I think so as well. And uh, especially if it's combined with some historical curiosity... Uh, as it was in my case, I've always loved uh, history and reading history and the decline of, in his, of historical knowledge now seems to be one of the real problems of our age because, uh, well, re- representative government, representative institutions as we know them and have inherited them really are, can only properly be understood against an historical background which reveals how difficult it was to create and sustain them. I mean, there, there seems to be a style of thinking um, which is fashionable, I guess, um, which is history doesn't matter, philosophy doesn't matter. It's a sort of science, quasi-scientific or hyper-empiricism. A kind of, of positivism. A sort of positivism, yes. And that's the only thing that really counts as... Yes. as thinking, you know, yes. what's your evidence? And yes. th- that's the sort of only sort of yes. question that's admissible. And, you know, it matters in a way most of all in, in, the, in the UK when the Constitution is historically defined. Yeah. And if the population at large has little or no knowledge of history, what becomes of the Constitution? Well, our present <laughs> Brexit debate is... Uh, Drawing attention to that, uh, does it? So, I think. so it's highlighted a certain rootlessness, has it, in our thinking? I think so. I think so, and not understanding clearly enough the difference between direct democracy and representative democracy, right. and you know the arguments which are about increasingly uh, around about the will of the people. I mean, this is a, a phrase which has not loomed large in British public life for, for a very long time and uh, you know I associate it more with the, the French Revolution than, <laughs> and, and, and Rousseau it, it was there it was there in the 17th century wasn't yes, it yes it was oh. but by the people they probably meant the uh, the educated yes. class yes Yes. Or, or at least, I mean, the, the levelers, it was the sort of it's NCOs, I yeah, guess. Yeah, not as inclusive as it would be today. <clears throat> no, and not women, no. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, we skipped ahead because I want to just, like, just trace a little bit more yeah, of yeah. your... Well, so I you said, go to Harvard. So I went to Harvard, and uh, uh, that was a wonderful experience. And there's nothing like... I, I've, I think and have always thought that the great thing about university education, and especially the better university the better the education, is you're educated by your contemporaries. And, you know, mixing with them with is, is so stimulating and uh, rehearsing arguments f- that you want to make later for the first time is, and coming subjecting them to criticism is, uh, is all important. And was philosophy your major there? Well, I, w- I was torn and have always been torn and tried to find some middle way between... History and philosophy, yes. 
Yes. Now, you just and, told me before, and I'm terribly jealous, that you used to traipse along to Harvard Memorial Chapel sometimes and that you heard people like the great Paul Tillich preach. Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr. Both, wow. Both great theologians of a kind who scarcely exist, I think, No, now. they don't, no. It is extraordinary, that change, that uh, I think in, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, uh, they, that sort of systematic... Uh, original thinking is hardly to be found. And when did you come over to this country? Oh, a long time ago. I mean, I was, I, I always felt actually more European than I did American. I think that was my grandmother's doing, largely. I came, well, I mean, I've been uh, for visits uh, before, but I, I left Harvard for, for Oxford in 1960. Okay. And have lived here and become British since. And and you and there you were taught by Isaiah Berlin. Uh, yes, uh, at at Oxford. Yes, yeah. I was indeed one of my uh, great heroes. <laughs> <was> just extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, was that I'm quite not, an experience? I actually met him in the United States. My sort of patron at Harvard was the chairman of the history department, a Renaissance historian, and. Uh, we went to a meeting where he and his wife had been in Washington during the Second World War when Isaiah turned up at the British Embassy and uh, he, they remained in touch, remained good friends because his wife was British. And so he decided that Isaiah was the man for me and, uh, and so I duly met him and... Uh, in fact, was in company with Ad, someone called Adlai Stevenson. Do you know who I mean? <laughs> I do know who you mean, yes. Who <laughs> was an unsuccessful Democratic candidate for the president, and that led to my going to Oxford. I mean, it, it feels, reading some of your work, knowing a bit about Isaiah Berlin, that Isaiah Berlin must have had quite a considerable influence upon you. Well, one of the great things about Isaiah was that he, he wasn't, he didn't want protégés. He didn't want to be, you know, at the head of a school, uh, unlike, say, some people in Cambridge who rather did uh, like to have followers, he was really, he, 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 he was a pluralist. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was, you know, he was, he, he was good at bringing you out and letting you follow your own direction. Uh, that's a great gift, I think. You would go into meetings with him. He would often be delayed by calls from the Russian embassy or Covent Garden or this, that or the other. But he, uh, you, you left feeling, and especially when you're doing a, a doctorate, this is very important, left feeling more enthusiastic about your subject than you were when you went in. How exciting. And it is. It's wonderful. What was your, what was your doctorate? Gift. Well, it was about two critics of the Enlightenment. And, uh, you know, I thought, as I still think, you know, classical liberalism has some things to learn. And, uh, and so I, ch I chose two rather different writers, one who grew up within the kind of empiricist tradition um, called Maine de Birin. I think, in some ways, in my view, almost the last great French philosopher. And he began as a, a disciple of Locke and Condillac, and that uh, tr tradition, and then became a, a critic of it on the grounds that it was presented an essentially passive view of the mind, and the activity of the mind was underestimated. 
uh, the other was a much more <coughs> dramatically radical figure uh, called Joseph de Mestre, uh, who headlong opponent of the, uh, the, the Enlightenment, but who understood, who was very clever, and who understood some things better than many of the, uh, as it were, proto-liberals of the 18th and early 19th century, because he, he wrote something which has hardly anyone has ever, I think, read, at least for a long time, called An Examination of the Philosophy of Bacon. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a critique of a kind of simple inductivism. So there's lots here now to start getting our teeth into. Yes. I suppose one of the, one of the ways we could start is to say something about the Enlightenment, because we've already had a brief conversation yes. about the sort of style of thinking that you've been a little critical of that's popular at the moment, which is this sort of positivism and so forth. And this positivism, wrongly in my view, but nonetheless still looks back to the Enlightenment for inspiration. The Enlightenment was the sort of, you know, year zero in, yeah. in, 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 uh, when thinking suddenly sort of um, came of age and threw off the, 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 the shackles of the Catholic Church and all of that sort of stuff well, and so forth. This well, is not a picture that you... That's the standard account. Yes. That's the standard or has become the standard account. And it's... Uh, it's not adequate, I think. Uh, if you're talking about really subtle philosophy, well, the philosophy that developed, especially once the universities uh, emerged in Europe, uh, were by the 12th, 13th, 14th century, was extremely impressive. I, I must say, I think one of the things that is least understood in our world is what a difference the emergence of universities made to Europe and its influence in the world. The rise of Europe is actually pretty much contemporaneous with the rise of universities. Wow. And the, the great thing about the universities is that they managed, some just, sometimes a close thing, to keep a bit detached from both church and state. But nonetheless, I mean, the, the part of the point I take it that you're making is that the universities were also highly religious um, institutions. And so the idea that at the Enlightenment, you sort of have to throw off all this backward thinking of the church, the church actually had sponsored uh, the sort of intellectual trajectory of European thought for several hundred years before but, then. But the universities also offered an opportunity for the state to begin to uh, have its influence vis-a-vis -vis the churches. Is that right? Yes, and, and this is especially noticeable, I think, in the area of law, where you know, the, the study of Roman law and uh, a, a much more analytical, philosophical approach to uh, law and its development began to draw, well, virtually push out uh, customary law, which had dominated public life. So the universities sit in the middle of a sort of two different big theology coming from the church side and law coming from the state yeah, side. Yeah. And in between those, it's finding its own place. In between is freedom. In, freedom. in between is freedom. A touch of freedom. Precarious at times, challenged at times, but invaluable. Now, one of the things that... Uh, We'll come to Europe a little bit later, and we've got... Do, do let. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about uh, the book that uh, I read with great profit 
of yours is the book about liberalism and inventing the individual. And part of the narrative of that is that, you know, we've overly associated perhaps the the rise of liberalism with, you know, Locke and these sorts of people. But actually you can trace it back through some of the debates you've just been talking about, but even earlier as well, back to the first century, to the rise of Christianity, or even before that. Perhaps you'd you'd say something about that. Certainly. What led me to write the book was that I had always been struck by the fact that most human societies historically have been organized around the claims of the family, uh, the tribe, or the caste. The West, by contrast, has come to be organized around the claims of the individual, and hence the importance of the language, the development and importance of the language of rights. So the question is, why, how did this happen? Why did the West come to differ from other parts of the world and other traditions so markedly? And you know, the answer, as I looked into it increasingly and thought about it, was Christianity made the difference. And, and specifically Pauline Christianity. Pauline. Is right? Well, Paul presented the concept in a way. I mean, if, 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 if Jesus was the percept, Paul provided the concept. Well, I suppose the reason terms. I specifically mention Paul is, is because, I mean, what, I, I take it that what makes Paul, as it were, a somewhere rather than an anywhere to use the language that we're using at the moment, is the sort of way in which faith in Jesus was allowed to break from its rootedness in a, in a particular culture in Judaism. And it could be the sort of faith that you could have from any culture from, and suddenly the individual is allowed. Well, I see Christianity as this extraordinary mixture of Judaism, which we were saying earlier, so it was so diverse in the first century AD, and Greek philosophy, and that it introduces, and this is, I think, you know, the the step Paul took more or less wittingly, uh, a kind of universalism into into yeah. into Ju- Judaic traditions, and so, and it's a question which is still, well, perhaps increasingly pertinent. I think if this is so, and if moral universalism is, in a way, the product of the Christian tradition, could it survive the decline of Christianity? And I'm, I'm presuming you think that the this universalism and individualism, this combination of these two things, this is a jolly good thing <laughs> that it happened. Or, or do, do you have, are you ambivalent well, about it? Well, I, I wouldn't use the word individualism. Okay. Uh, for reasons I'll explain at some point. I, uh, the universalism, yes, I think is a good thing if we are all to live together on this planet uh, more or less peaceably. I mean, the only, th- the only reason I ask you that, I guess, is that, and I suppose this does take us into debates that are very, feel very contemporary, is that um, for many people, the, the desire for a sort of rootedness geographical, cultural rootedness uh, is something that they feel they want to reclaim. And the universalism or universal values seem to be deracinated 
And there's this battle now, isn't there, that, you know, I mean, that's, I suppose, what Trump and Brexit and all these sorts of things is how does the, well, I'll use the word individual, you can tell me why, but that's wrong. But how does the individual that has this sort of universal scope also find a place in the world that's a place for them and their family and their rootedness? I mean, what this brings up is the question of the nature and prospects of liberalism. Yes. And... I think liberalism has, especially in the uh, since the second end of the Second World War, gone badly wrong in some respects, and in that way, I'm a, very much a critic of what's called neoliberalism. What is the result of this going wrong is what we see everywhere, which is the, liberalism is doesn't bring out aspiration anymore. It doesn't. It seems very neoliberalism reduces what I would call classical liberalism, to market economics. It's pantalies and pence. And uh, that is, is dangerously reductionist, I think. What, what we have to do, I think, is recapture the spirit of an earlier liberalism. And so this is very interesting and important to me because I, yeah. I need to feel a difference. Because So I've often said, and I might be wrong about this, and perhaps I, when I think of liberalism, I suppose I think of Margaret Thatcher, I think of Hayek, I think of these sorts of people who are, I've always felt to be in the tradition of classical liberalism. It's all about the freedom of the individual, the freedom of the individual to make as much money as they like. or um, And, and this, this freedom which has ignored our wider rootedness. Yes. Well, uh, you see, I would, I would defend liberalism against this, but I would defend it by saying that it misses out an important part of the liberal tradition. Okay. What I think you're pointing to are what seems to me the weaknesses of, a, of, a, of, the, of the British form of liberalism, which uh, uh, has, has taken gradually this increasingly economic form, uh, uh, the kind of proto-neoliberalism. Yeah. Uh, and if, but if you look at some of the early, some especially continental liberals, you get a very different picture and, and set of proposals, really. And for me, the, the subtlest, the most uh, satisfactory version of liberalism is that of Tocqueville. What we've, what we've almost forgotten in the face of neoliberalism and its uh, almost obsessive interest in the market uh, and uh, e efficiency is that it, it posits a kind of the isolated individual and you know, rational decision-making and uh, all of that. But an, an important tradition on the continent of liberalism is quite different. It's quite different. Explain, explain we, to well, me what it, what it, how it differs. For one thing, what has gradually happened, and, and especially in our time, is that uh, the neoliberalism has neglected the constitutional uh, concerns of, uh, of earlier of earlier liberal thought. I mean, in the you know Locke, Montesquieu, uh, Constant Tocqueville, they were for them liberalism was all about the dispersal of power, as well as the uh, empowerment of individuals. And if you, if you take Tocqueville as the paradigm of, a, of, a, of an alternative form of liberalism, which I think he does offer, 
what you find is for Tocqueville, the idea is that you, at the same, you liberate individuals, but you also root them. And you do that by taking seriously the question of, of, dis, of dispersing power. And the constitutional means of that are the protection and maximizing of local and regional autonomy. For, for Tocqueville, it's very interesting because they were friends uh, and more or less contemporaries. If you compare Tocqueville to John Stuart Mill, who's so often taken as the chief exponent of the British liberal tradition, and look at the look at the approach to the word individual and individualism. Now, for for Mill, uh, individualism is a virtue. I mean, it's 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 the the point in a way of of freedom. For Tocqueville, individualism is a vice. Oh, is that right? For Tocqueville, oh. yes, it's it's the. For Tocqueville, That's why you pulled me for, up earlier. On yes, yeah, so, yes. For Tocqueville, the the point of local liberty is to bring a, is to foster association, and and the habit of association is 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 achieved and 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 and, and encouraged by constitutional means, the dispersal of authority, the protection of local and regional autonomy, which fosters association. Over and against absolute power of the monarch or whatever. Yeah, or just reliance on the market. I see. Uh, that whole constitutional for Tocqueville, it, as I said, individualism is a vice. It's, for him, the, 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 a properly organized liberal social and political order would foster self-reliance and the habit of association. And he, he thought the two depended on each other. So if de Tocqueville um, arrived in London today, uh, or arrived in, uh, in this country today, he might well think that neoliberalism had led to the concentration of power within the city of London. Well, uh, I think, I've become, I mean, I've written a little bit about Brexit. I'm, I'm convinced that many, if not most of the complaints behind the Brexit the referendum were the result of discontents with the British state and had very little to do with the European Union. Since, well, the First and Second World War contributed to this, but because in a way the Constitution is unwritten, after the Second World War, countries with written constitutions reverted to an earlier form. I mean, the centralization imposed by war was, you could say, dismantled to a large extent. It's never been dismantled, I think, in the United Kingdom with its historical, con- uh, with the his- historical nature of its constitution. It's just acquired practices. And, and then Thatcherism, I think, accelerated this centralization of power so that the Treasury is far too powerful in, in British government at the expense of local and regional autonomy. And have we ever had that tradition that you describe in De Tocqueville of... of, of we, a... we had it, okay. but it was tied to a certain social order. To uh, lo- Localism was protected informally in the UK until well into the 20th century by the structure of society. By, class structure. By class structure. I see. And, you know, the, after all, when most MPs came from a, a, or a relatively privileged class and often had uh, an important role locally as... They weren't interested in seeing power pulled away from the local locality to the centre. 
they they resisted that, but the difference is the resistance was informal. So the rise and, and, of the and, middle and, class and, and, so and the flattening out of our class system has, has actually has drained removed, power exactly, from the regional from e- the regions. E- exactly. What an extraordinary idea. Exactly. And uh, you know that's one of the as were weaknesses of an of an unwritten constitution. Whereas, if you have a written constitution, it's something to fall back on. Well, that that seems to me to be emerging now with the Brexit crisis. Isn't isn't there also? If you look at if you look at France, for instance, yes. don't you also get a sense that there's an over reliance on Paris yes. in terms of the nature of the country, and like the rest of the country can sort of go hang if you live in Paris? Well, Isn't that the same sort of thing as London to the rest of the? Well, I, th- I think now, of course, there's been an important decentralising movement in France since eighty one, which has had quite tolerably good con- consequences, I, I would say, but. No, well, it's no accident that the liberal thinkers I admire, like Constant, Tocqueville, and, uh, and even going back to Montesquieu, were concerned about local and regional autonomy because the centralizing was already taking place in France. In, in, in the UK, it took place much later. We, we had a very brief conversation before we yeah. earlier, and I said to you that I was very taken with the... The, the way in which the sort of liberal communitarian debate had been framed by, I don't know, I guess from the 80s onwards or something like that, from people like Michael Sandel and all this sort of stuff. And I've always, I've always seen myself as a communitarian, suspicious of the sort of neoliberalism, yes, I guess, yes. that, that, that we both disagree, dislike. But what you're perhaps saying is that many of my anxieties about individual and so forth, could actually be carried by uh, an older tradition of liberalism. And it doesn't require all this communitarian stuff in order to realise it. Well, yes, I I think that's right. I think in some ways it's... I mean, I I sympathise with localism, the communitarianism in in, in many respects, but I think if you want to turn it into a a formalised, as it were, matter which you can legislate about, then the constitutional means remain very, very important. And uh, they've been uh, terribly neglected in the UK. On this analysis, on this story that you're telling, Brexit is a sort of backlash against uh, this, I guess, this hole opened up after the Second World War in which, you know, power was centralised and... and social change meant that, in a way, the as what I what I call the informal uh, constraints on centralisation were were gradually lifted as uh, as desirable social changes took place, and the kind of governing class dis- disintegrated. It's not. It's not just about. Um, I mean, Brexit is not just about um, how things feel in the UK. Though I, there's also a sense of a gap that. Um, opened up for people between us and and Brussels, or some sense of distant, a- absent authority. That there is a sort of sense of power being something that happens from a long way away, um, and Brussels became one of the symbols of that distant power. Um, people, I mean, economically, you know, people work in warehouses they're owned by people a long way away. The, the, the authority always seems, you know, if, if you live in many old industrial, ex-industrial cities in the north, 
power always seems to be something that's done to you from without. And Brussels became a sort of symbol of that. Yeah. Is that is that? Well, I think that's right. But I think it's also a, a misdiagnosis in a way. I mean, I think more more of the fault lies with London. And, are you a Remainer, and, and so Larry? Are you I, a, I am. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I am, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a Remainer on condition. I mean, I think what we should have done is, even after the result of the referendum, which, as I said, uh, I think was in many ways a protest, a mis- slightly misguided protest against what's happened to the British state since the end of the Second World War or earlier, I think what we should have done is not invoke Article 50 uh, after the referendum, and we should have gone to Brussels and done what the UK, in my view, ought to have done decades ago once we became a member, which is put together a comprehensive program for reform of the European Union, one which removed the the French, really, model of, 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 a, of a more centralised Europe. I thought, the, I, thought, I thought you were telling me earlier that the French model philosophically speaking, was the right model. Well, the, the liberal, French liberals I'm talking about were people reacting against the French form of I the see. state. I see, I see, I see. And what the French programme for Europe is, as some of my French friends are as they admit, a programme for a larger France. I see, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> so, so to that extent, you're happy to protest against... You'd be happy to protest against... You wouldn't want a Europe as a larger France. no. In fact, you know, the book I wrote in two, 2000, Democracy in Europe, the first sentence is democratic legitimacy in Europe is at risk. And what the argument is that, and I think this is very important to understand developments in, in, in Europe even now with the growth of Euroscepticism across the continent, is that the early, my argument was that the earliest stages of European integration had been relatively painless because they touched interests rather than identities. But by, by the 1990s, you know, the program was beginning to, and especially after German reunification and the French pushing for a single currency, the abolition of national currencies and all that, it was beginning to touch identities as well as, uh, as interests. And that that began, that made... Even the European and and the the rational response, the right response to that would have been to proceed very very much more slowly, uh, and and carefully. And instead, you had suddenly the creation of a single currency, and these, you know, I think. Uh, but 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 you understand the reaction of wanting to sort of draw back from that, repatriate powers. The the, I mean, in the face of a a greater Europe. Nationalism feels a bit like localism. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But th- that's why I think uh, we have failed in that. By I think by its traditions, Britain ought to have taken the lead in, as it were, opposing the French model for Europe, and 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 we didn't. We 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 instead acquired the reputation on the continent of being difficult and wanting this or that, but never presenting a program for reform that the others could understand. Yes, yes, yes. I think the Dutch in particular, who helped to keep the door open for EU membership for the the United Kingdom, have been rather disappointed because... And and uh, even now they're trying to... uh, 
to to do what they can to oppose a, a very centralizing agenda. But what what sort of philosophical resources do we have to offer? If if your analysis is correct, that. We don't have a written constitution. After the Second World War, the sort of hole opened up that neoliberalism, Thatcherism sort of filled. Um, uh, we don't have resources for subsidiarity within our own with, within our own country. Uh, if we don't have we don't have this written constitution, what what are the resources that we have? Philosophical, intellectual resources that are distinctive that we might have offered. Well. I think we have to. Uh, my own hunch is that uh, the consequence of the Brexit cri- of the whole Brexit crisis will be a federal UK. That uh, it's probably the only way now to keep the union together, and uh, I think that I think that's been true ever since Mr. Blair uh, I- introduced partial or asymmetric devolution. The moment you do that. You begin to create resentments when why should the, the Scots have more devolution than the Welsh or whatever? I mean, I I I, I think that's in a way a re- irreversible process, and uh, and and uh, sooner or later, the outcome will be will be a federal UK. Is nationalism a dirty word for you? Mm, its associations <laughs> certainly are. Uh, make it a word to be careful of, I think. Um, I don't think national pride is a bad thing, and uh, nor is local pride or re- regional pride. You know, those, going back to the devolution question, those who argue that there isn't enough, isn't enough regionalism in the, in the United Kingdom to, uh, uh, to sustain a, a fairly you know, systematic federal constitution i think they're wrong i mean i think it's i think you know there are still very distinct regional identities in the uk which could be if you go to yorkshire well, <laughs> well, yes well i think the southwest the yes east anglia the, yes. no i mean i i don't see that, that really is an insuperable obstacle and, and do you and do you favor a written constitution i do really yes and that's not the sort of rationalism that uh, a, a, that that's not an expression of the sort of rationalism that you also sort well, of are I, suspicious of as well. You know, as I said, I think some of the uh, traditional achievements of the British state, which was relatively decentralised, rested on a certain structure of society, on on a certain amount of social privilege and deference. Remove and that's the pri- not coming remember, back. Is it? Remove the privilege and the deference. And then you have a problem. You, there isn't enough to sustain that sort of de- decentralized system. And actually, and the, and the, and, the, and 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 for people like me who acknowledge who who feel that, um, all we have left is a sort of nostalgia for something that ain't coming back. <laughs> yes, well, that is a risk. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true of me, you know. <laughs> but but I I. I just feel so strongly that you know liberalism has more resources to offer than you know the standard account in this country suggests. It's such a messy word, isn't it, liberalism? Because yeah. I mean, you know, you go into different parts of the world, and it means things that are so 
shockingly different. You yeah. know, if you go to yeah. if you go to America, it, it seems to be almost synonymous with being left wing or 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 being woke or whatever. In my head, you know, it's actually synonymous with Thatcherism and neoliberalism. Yeah. And you've talked about a complete. How did this word become so? Well, I mean, it have so many meanings, I guess. Well, that's a good question, and I think partly it's due to, I mean, that it seems to me if you still go back to films and look at Franklin Roosevelt speaking during the First Second World War or Churchill after the Second World War, liberalism is still a kind of moral crusade. I mean, the free world, you know, they talked about with pride and and optimism, uh, and then. You, know, you could put it down partly to competition with the Soviet Union. What happens is it became an economic struggle between you know, Marxist societies and uh, so-called capitalist societies. Uh, and, and, that, and that you know, began to penetrate and dominate li- li- liberal thinking so that, so that you get you know, the argument, well, capitalism is more... Uh, Capitalism produces better results than, than than Marxism, greater prosperity, and so forth. There's a kind of economic reductionism, which uh, I think takes place, and and which emerges as neoliberalism. So, and I'm obviously extremely sympathetic to the idea that you know if you have some sort of absolute power, then liberalism as a as a, an argument for, against absolute power seems to be an entirely legitimate thing. But once that absolute power of the church, of the, of, of the monarchy and so forth, has been, has been destroyed, um, once even the absolute power of the a class system has been destroyed, liberalism always seems to be looking for new things to liberate itself from. And then it ends up eating itself because it starts to liberate itself from the sort of constituent forces of our own flourishing um that it starts to eat into things like family and and uh you know place yeah, and yeah. uh locality and that's when i start to yeah, begin I, to think well we i agree with you and but this is where i think you know the tocqueville emphasis on individual autonomy and self-reliance grows with the habit of association and is strengthened by the habit of association. Yeah, I can see that. Ra- rather than being threatened by it. Yes, I can see that. I and, can see that. And that's, I think, the, the weakness of a kind of John Stuart Mill form of liberalism, which just wants, presents society as a threat, uh, and a threat to individual self-expression or whatever. Isn't this an old... There's a sort of a bit of the old Tory in... In, in, in you, is it? <laughs> Maybe a bit. <laughs> no, no, but you know, I'm not taking... I mean, I'm, I'm accepting that the, the structure of society and approving uh, the change in the structure of society... So we're going to leave the European Union. It looks like we're going to leave the European Union. I, 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 I guess you think that's true as well, do you? Oh, you well, don't know. No, it seems... Highly likely, yes, 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 highly likely. But you know, I do think, I do suspect that if the U, if the UK is to remain a single state, it will have, probably have become a, a federal state. A federal state, and then the English will have to have to do some soul searching about who we are. Yes, but you know, even 
even the prospect of that might concentrate minds on what you know this seems to me is the significant and and beneficial side of of a constitutional thought you know that these are important issues um you know localism <clears throat> regionalism and how does that just just help me to see this because i'm not a i'm not a constitutional yeah. uh, thinker but how does a constitution embed that sort of regionalism how would it, how would it work well I don't think the United States would have been able to hold together as a unitary nation. I, uh, I mean, you had to, the, the, the variety is uh, is simply too great. States, so sort of states' rights and things like yes. that. So there'd be something, some equivalent to that sort of thing that would we would have to have to establish here. I think I think Westminster would probably become the English Parliament. And there would have to be, and the House of Lords could be transmuted into uh, a, an upper assembly of of the of the the the, 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 the nation. Yes, in Manchester too, or somewhere well, different. Some, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, look at Trump and and so-called populism in 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 the United States. Uh, I mean, it's really a battle between Trump and the Constitution. <laughs> And thank goodness the Constitution is there. Question is how you know how effective is the defense of it. You know the the weakness of an uh, of an unwritten Constitution is that it depends on almost by definition on manners. We've we've always we've always prided ourselves on yes. on our manners. I mean I, I yes. don't mean our politeness, but I mean our sort of form of life. But I think that's that too has been. Uh, I guess this is part of my. Anxiety about neoliberalism that too has been eroded, or feels like it's been eroded by the sort of historic amnesia that you have in in uh, neoliberalism. The, uh, I mean, the I think I don't unless there is fairly widespread, and I think it, even in the poorest people, there was a, the, until the early post-war period there was a stronger sense of and and, and a bit of knowledge of the British tradition, and. I think that historical knowledge has now almost disappeared among the young. They, uh, and that's, that's a serious problem for an unwritten constitution. Well, you both have me thinking and have slightly depressed me <laughs> about <laughs> our prospects. Do you, do you, well, I'm, I think federalism and creating a, a federal state would be a very exciting prospect. Right. So there's upsides to Brexit as well for you. Yes, well, if if that's one of the consequences, I mean, if it's just becoming a subaltern state, you know, proper province of the United States, and I'm not so enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we we shouldn't be discouraged, but we should be careful. And and for, for what I think is very sad for everyone in Europe is that the UK hasn't, as I said, led. A more a successful reform movement within the European Union. I mean, the but we haven't had the, the politicians with the imagination to do that. I knew Harold Macmillan, and he was, you know, his great project was trying to take Britain into Europe. And if he'd succeeded, but of course De Gaulle's veto intervened. I think if Britain had been a member from that early date, the EU would be quite different. Because as it happened, de Gaulle's veto, I suppose in a way he was, it's what he wanted. For a couple of decades, the French really dominated the, the 
the European Union and the and its development. But people people often see that the European Union is a something that's dominated by German wealth and so forth. But you don't see that. And I think the Germans have, you know, ever since the end of the war, found it let's say difficult to stand up to the French in certain circumstances. And I think the latest developments in the EU suggest, uh, you know, that Macron, Macron is making on the running. Macron is making the running. Well, you you haven't persuaded me not to be a Brexiter, but you've certainly um, made me think a lot more about what it is that we're going to be having to think about next. So thank you very much for talking to me and thank you much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Listener.